So we'll start with a uh, word of prayer here. Let me see here. Wes, would you open us tonight? Father, thank you so much for Thanksgiving. Thank you, Father, for that time of year when we uh, look to you and give thanks for all of your bounty and blessing upon this, this land. Uh, though we are, do not deserve your bounty, Lord, we just thank you so much for it and your grace and kindness toward us and patience. Father, I pray as we look into the scriptures tonight regarding uh, the future, I pray, Father, that we would be attentive, that uh, we would listen carefully, and uh, we would uh, take away that which is pertinent to our lives. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Okay, so our topic tonight is the uh, kingdom. We started it last time we were here, uh, so a little bit of reminder. Uh, we are defending here a pre-millennialism. Uh, pre uh, that is, there is going to be uh, the return of Christ, and and uh, uh, and uh, there's going to be a there's going to be a uh, a kingdom that lasts a thousand years after the second coming of Jesus Christ. Okay, and uh, uh, the uh, the alternatives we talked about are amillennialism and postmillennialism. Amillennialism is the idea that there is no thousand-year reign of Christ, earthly reign, per se. Uh, the kingdom, such as it is, uh, is the church, uh, the uh, rule of God, rule of, rule of Christ in the life of the church, um, and uh, bringing then all things under subjection to himself. Of course, that sort of merges then with post-millennialism, the idea that there is a kingdom, uh, on earth, and Jesus is ruling, although from a distance, okay? And uh, so the, uh, all the terms of the kingdom that are described in the Old Testament are being fulfilled, not spiritually, like the amillennialist says, but naturally. Uh, and so we should expect then uh, the kingdom to advance uh, in terms of, uh, uh, you know, the... Uh, uh, the, the elimination of disease, but not because God Christ comes back and eliminates disease supernaturally, but because through our, through our you know, industry, through our research, and through our vaccines and all of his coming, uh, these things will be gradually and naturally established by mankind. And then as mankind succeeds at this more and more and more, uh, Christ e eventually returns to be something of the capstone uh, for the establishment of the kingdom. But we're here, we're, we are here de defending here pre-millennialism, uh, the idea that the kingdom uh, is not right now. Uh, the uh, uh, whatever whatever we see here on the earth is the mystery of the kingdom, um, and the idea here is of a mystery is something that hadn't been previously revealed. Now is being uh, 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 disclosed here by by uh, Paul. He calls himself the revealer of the mystery of the church. Okay, this this idea that for a period of time Israel and the Gentiles are going to be in a mixed group. Uh, there's not going to be any ethnic distinctions within the life of the church, uh, but we're not in the kingdom. The kingdom is going to revert to this Jewish-dominated uh, kind of situation here. And so we await the day when the mystery of the kingdom will be completed and uh, the kingdom proper uh, will uh, resume uh, with the coming of Jesus Christ. And of course, that's all uh, described here. We saw on page 36 in this uh, 
this parable of Luke 19. Uh, Jesus and his disciples were uh, tromping towards uh, uh, Jerusalem on the, uh, the uh, triumphal entry, and they're moving towards Jerusalem. And even though Jesus had sort of announced not too, too long ago that the, the kingdom is going to be taken away from this generation and given to one that does the fruit of it, uh, there are enough faithful followers of Jesus uh, that when they're marching towards Jerusalem, they, they get a sense of excitement. Well, may, maybe he's changed his mind. Maybe, maybe there's going to be a kingdom. And so it says here, they thought the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately in Luke 19.1, and so he went on to tell them a parable to dissuade them of this, of this hope, this immediate hope. And he talks about this nobleman who goes off to a far country uh, in order to receive his kingdom, playing off the history of the day in which Herod had gone to Rome in order to receive the kingdom from uh, Caesar Augustus. You, don't, you didn't just become a king uh, in the Roman Empire. You had to receive your kingdom uh, from the emperor. And so he had to go to Rome in order to receive a long trip. And he was gone for some time. And there's actually, uh, you can read about this in, uh, in, the, in the, the, the local history of the day, that uh, there was a group of Jews that went, went sort of tagged along with and said, we don't want this man to be the ruler over us. So just like in the parable. Um, and yet, uh, just as Herod uh, received the kingdom and came back with a bit of judgment, because, there was, <laughs> because of these people who didn't want him to be the king, uh, so Jesus is going to come back someday. And as the king, and he's going to execute judgment and then establish himself as king. And so that, that's the expectation we should have, uh, that Jesus has gone away. He's, he's in heaven at the right hand of God, uh, waiting for the enemies to be made a footstool for his feet uh, so that his scepter can go out uh, and uh, his kingdom be established. Okay, And we started talking about what this kingdom is going to look like, and, and uh, again, Again, part of the reason why we have to believe in premillennialism, because a lot of these things, there's, there's nothing close uh, to the descriptors that we find in the Old Testament uh, that are ongoing today. I think we started with the physical aspect. Uh, disease will be eliminated. No one living in Zion in that day will say, I am ill. The eyes of the blind will be opened, the deers of the deaf unstopped. The, leap will leap, leap, the lame will leap like a deer, and the mute tongue will shout for joy. You know, it's uh, oh, four a thousand tongues to sing, right? Uh, the last verse. Uh, it's, sometimes it moves in the, uh, in, the, uh, in the hymnal, but the last verse that's supposed to be at the last verse is, um, ye blind behold your, 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 your Savior come, ye leap ye lame for joy. Um, and so all of these are all, all that, are, that are included there because it's the anticipation of that. Psalm 91, no harm will befall you, no disaster will come near your tent. God will send angels to make sure that you're protected. So not just from disease, but, uh, but from injury here. You will not even strike your foot against a stone. And God will prevent your natural clumsiness uh, from, from, from taking you, uh, you know, giving you a stubbed toe there. Life expectancy will dramatically increase. A 100-year-old person will be considered a youth. 
and uh, old men will live out their days. And it appears uh, that, in fact, uh, there is no death at all for the faithful. It's only the unfaithful uh, that actually die. Animals lose their aggressiveness. The wolf lies down with the lamb, the leopard with the goat, the calf and the lion and yearling together. A little child can lead these wild animals and even can put his hand into the cobra's nest and uh, that, that snake wouldn't dare it uh, bite the child's hand. Uh, meteorological changes, a shelter from heat by day, a hiding place from storm and rain. So it's hard to know exactly what that means, but uh, uh, there's going to perhaps be protection from severe weather. It's hard to know exactly what that means here. Uh, Reaper will overtake the plowman. Uh, because because you know things are going so swimmingly in the uh, agricultural realm, uh, obviously a little bit of exaggeration here, but you know the reapers, you know he, it's growing so fast that the reapers overtaking the plowman as he as he moves, and so there's uh, that that's because of meteorological changes. Of course, that that leads then into uh, some of the social aspect. There's there's not going to be any hunger if that much food is growing that fast. Uh, there's not going to be any concern about uh, people being hungry any longer. But war will be eliminated. They're going to take all of their implements of war and beat them into farm implements. Okay? So swords will be beaten into plowshares. And probably don't have to think in, in absolute literal terms, but to think in terms of implements of war are going to be repurposed for domestic use, if we, if we can put it that way. Poverty will be eliminated, but interestingly, through industry. I think this is where we left off last time, if I remember. Uh, but Isaiah 65, during this day, they will build houses and inhabit them. They will also plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They won't build and another inhabit. Now, that's you know, oftentimes what happens in the world here, you, you put all your, your sweat equity into something and somebody, gets, somebody else gets the profit. Somebody else gets the benefits of all the work that you did. Not in the millennium. You're, you're going to, you, are going to, you are going to enjoy the wealth that you produce. Okay? Um, and it's going to be done through industry. So it's not just, you know, just sit back and it's all going to come to you. Uh, there's going to be industry, and you're going to work hard, and you're going to uh, you're going to have you're going to have wealth. You're going to have the wealth of the nations uh, that will come, um, and people will wear out the work of their hands. There'll be plenty of work to do, and they can and 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 there's there'll, there'll be uh, plenty of profit to be made. Everyone uh, will have abundance and comfort, uh, but because of the work that they do. There will be an ethical standard here, a universal, accurate standard of righteousness that will be enforced perfectly. The king will reign righteously. Princes will rule justly. No longer will the fool be called a noble, and the rogue will be, or, or the rogue be spoken of as generous. Now we, we see all this going on right now. These, these uh, people who are committing terrible crimes that are being defended in the media as some sort of paragons of virtue, and it, and it frustrates us, right, when we, when, when we hear that. Well, it's not going to be like that during the millennium. You know, we're, we're going to, Jesus is going to be in charge, and he's going to see right through it all, okay? And, and everything's going to be set right. 
A bruised reed he will not break, a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. He will faithfully bring forth justice. So someone who is actually, uh, who is, who, 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 there, if there's, there's a weakness and someone's taken advantage of someone, uh, it's, they're not going to break. He's going to come to their defense. Okay? And so the one who is truly being oppressed is going to be uh, exonerated. There's a political aspect. The king will rule from a throne in Jerusalem. The government will be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Prince of Peace. He will judge between the nations, render decisions for many peoples, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. The king will reign righteously, princes will rule justly, and Jerusalem will finally be called the city of the great king. Okay, and then a liturgical aspect. Okay, so there's going to be a restoration of some of the uh, uh, religious forms. He will build a temple of the Lord, and he who will build the temple of the Lord, he will, and he who will bear the honor and sit and rule on his throne, and he will be a priest on his throne. And the council of peace will between be between the two offices. Okay, so. Jesus is going to be the one who actually can occupy both of those offices simultaneously, and there will be peace between the two offices. So he will be the king, and he will be a priest. He will be a priest on the throne, okay? And there will be harmony between these two functions, okay? Never, no, no clashing between church and state, okay? Uh, they're, they're because the same, the same uh, Lord and Christ will be in charge of both spheres, of government and, and and it'll be good. Okay, it's 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 not as though you know. Sometimes we we see in our own history where church and state have been married and it's been bad news. Uh, not here. This is very good news that church and state will be merged under the head of Jesus Christ. And it has a spiritual aspect. Um, and perhaps we could have put this first, but I want again. Yeah. So the question is, are there going to be sacrifices? Yes. Um, uh, if, you, if you read Exodus, Ezekiel 40 to 48, there's abundant and very specific descriptions of the kinds of sacrifices that will be go ongoing during this time. Now, there, there are certain uh, of the uh, sacrifices that will not, but many of them will. And uh, so, so perhaps the question is, okay, I thought Jesus made an end to all the sacrifices. And... and uh, there is, there, is, there is one sense in which we, have to, we, we, we think in those terms because there is, there is a, when Jesus came, he completed the, the old covenant and did away with those sacrifices as they stood. But we have to recognize that those sacrifices never saved anybody. Remember, Hebrews says that, right? Uh, that the, the blood of bulls and goats never took away sin. And so we have to recognize that those sacrifices were not somehow replaced by Jesus in that Jesus, Jesus saved us where, the, where before the sacrifices saved us. It was never that way. Sacrifices never did that. Uh, the sacrifices really had a threefold function. Uh, one, it maintained peace within the theocratic community. Okay? So firstly, um, if, uh, uh, when, you, uh, when you look at the... At, Old Testament Israel and the kingdom which is to come. You don't see any prisons. Uh, there's, there's, how, how is it that 
crime is punished and, and, and justice is served. Well, there's going to be, there was a, there was a, a network of fines and sacrifices that were to be offered in order to keep peace within the community. And in the eyes of the community, a sacrifice was, was enough to make you right with society. Okay? A, you know, example might be, okay, you, yeah, you, you're, you're, you're trucking down Fort Street here and a policeman pulls you over, clocks you going too fast, and, and you have to go into that little office, whatever that little office is, and you have to you know, bring your check with you and you have to pay and, and hope you can beg it down a little bit or, or whatever the case may be. And, and, and so you go in there and you write your check grudgingly, uh, and you give it to them, and they give you a receipt, and you walk out, and you announce, Hooray, I'm saved! No, <laughs> you, don't, you don't say that. No, what, what you say is, okay, I'm right with society now. I, I owe no man anything because I've paid my debt to society with that check. Yeah, okay. <laughs> and the same thing is true when someone goes to prison. In fact, we even use that kind of a language, okay? He went to prison, got out, he's paid his debt to, his, to society, okay? And so the law requires nothing more. Okay, so, he's, he, so he is right within the community, but it really has nothing to do with whether he's saved or not, okay, right? And I think that, that was the primary function of the sacrifices in the Old Testament, to, to, to function as a system of crime and punishment for the theocratic community. That was the primary thing. Now, it did actually have other functions. It also was a, 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 a way of demonstrating one's sanctification. Okay? Obedience to the law was something that one did in order to demonstrate his fidelity to the covenant and to the covenant God. Okay? So uh, that was an appropriate thing. And then also... But I leave it to last because I don't think it was the primary function of the Old Testament prophet of the Old Testament sacrifices. There was a, 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 a an anticipatory function of those those sacrifices. You know, you 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 walked in, you know, I can I'm just seeing say some 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 man comes in with his 12 year old boy, first time uh, to go through because he's 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 of age, and you know they offer the sacrifices and they're wandering around, praying, and, and do, doing things, and, and it's all exciting for this boy. He'd never seen anything like this before in his life. And, and, and then the boy says, can, can we go behind that, that, that curtain over there? And what would Dad say? Well, no, we can't. But we brought the sacrifice. Well, yeah, but there's some things that the sacrifice doesn't do. Okay? You can't get behind that curtain. That, that's strictly forbidden. Nobody does that. Uh, the priest does it once a year, and even then it's, they put bells on his garments and a tire rope to his leg just in case he doesn't make it out, right? So, so, so no, we can't go in there. And so there was perhaps this idea that there's still something undone, something kind of like these sacrifices, but better, okay? And so there would be perhaps a, a prospective uh, idea that there's something better coming, um, and, uh, and so, so, so all of those things, I think, can be reinstated once a kingdom is in place. Okay? No longer are we in a situation 
uh, where you know the crime and punishment are handled over here and the and and church is handled over here they're merged together again and so we can have this system of crime and punishment uh, that is that is that is uh, reinstated here uh, there still can be these commemorations these 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 recognitions that there's something like what happens with these animals that happened with Jesus 2,000 years ago. We do that every, every month, are you right? Yeah. We, 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 have the, we have the bread and we have the, the wine and, and we, what do we do? We say there's something like this happened 20 years, or two, 2,000 years ago and we remember it. Okay? And we, we look at that and that, 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 those things don't save me. But there's, but there's some functional value in remembering in a graphic way like that. Okay? I think those sacrifices are going to do the same thing in the kingdom. So, so yes, there's going to be sacrifices in the kingdom, uh, but don't, don't, don't be confused into thinking that they're somehow salvific or redemptive in, in function. I don't know if that answers the question. So who, who would participate then? Not the church, right? Well, uh, we find, remember we find that Israel is a... Is a, is a kingdom of priests for the nations. Uh, so I, certainly anyone who sins is going to be a participant in that. So, right. The glory, yeah, we would be in that. So we would be in glorified situation, resurrected state. So we wouldn't be sinning. Uh, so we wouldn't need to do that as part of a system of crime and punishment. We'd be above that. Uh, at the same time, I don't think it would be inappropriate even for us to have a commemorative kind of a sacrifice uh, to remember and to you know, cogitate on the fact that Jesus died for us. So could we possibly be participants in that? Maybe. But I think principally it's for those who are in, in non-resurrected bodies at this point, uh, people who are still sinning. Okay. So there's a spiritual aspect then, number six here, and in order to get into the kingdom, you have to be born again. Okay, that's the only way in. So there's this spiritual aspect, and uh, at the beginning of the tribulation, at the beginning of the uh, millennium, at the end of the tribulation, I will give to the peoples purified lips so that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him from shoulder to shoulder. And again, that metaphor of the lips perhaps eludes us a little bit because we don't use that metaphor anymore, but in, in Hebrew life, the lips stood for the person. Remember Isaiah in the throne room of God? Woe is me, I'm undone because I'm a man of unclean lips. And so rapidly the, the, the angel comes over, takes the coal and touches his lips and says, you're cleansed. And so, so the idea here, the lips standing for the whole person. We do, the same, we do that with our, the word heart, right? Okay, I love you with all my heart. Well, really, nothing to do with the pumping organ there. Um, so they would use lips as their metaphor, and so so this is the idea. I'm going to give them. I'm going to purify them all, give them all purified lips, so that they will call upon the name of the Lord and serve Him from shoulder to shoulder. Okay, and so this is the kingdom we're looking for. And if you don't have all of these things we just went through, we don't have the kingdom. Okay. And uh, so we, uh, I've sort of already surveyed this, but what do, the other, what do the other positions do? Well, the amillennialist says all those promises, that of all these details, they are just 
metaphorical, they're typological, uh, some sort of symbolic thing uh, for spiritual blessings. Okay, so all of these details about the weather and the wolves and and uh, the uh, the agriculture and the uh, and the sun and the moon and all the, all these things are just symbols of spiritual blessings that are involved that are enjoyed in the church. And so, like I say, the amillennialist spiritualizes all of these promises. And then again, the postmillennialist, uh, uh, instead of spiritualizing all these promises, naturalizes all of the promises. So it's not something that God in Jesus Christ comes and establishes in a moment. It's something that we gradually ease our way into and, and produce by natural means. Uh, but neither one of these really works uh, with, the, uh, with, the, uh, with the language we have here. It is, it is something that is literal, uh, something that is supernatural and will be established and imposed uh, by uh, Christ himself when he arrives. So, so that's, I'm sort of glossing over that box there. Okay, so bumping to page 40 then, and, or any questions up till this point? So, and some questions of, yes, Mark. <coughs> Yes. Right. Correct. Yeah. So the question for those of you in internet land um, is John 3 3 says you can't enter the kingdom of God without being born again. Does that mean that there, that there are only believers in the totality of the history of the uh, kingdom? And the answer is no, because those who enter in natural bodies, even they're born again, but they're still in natural bodies. They'll have children, and those, those people are not automatically regenerate. And so we, we find, in fact, at the end, there's going to be a rebellion. So Satan's going to be able to gather some people. Who's he going to gather? I thought everybody was regenerate or resurrected. And, well, apparently he's going to tap into these people that were born during the course of the millennium. Yeah. So some questions that have been asked already is, okay, you know, who's, who plays what role in this kingdom here? And see if we can't uh, tease a little bit about that out. Uh, the kingdom's going to be composed of distinguishable echelons. You know, there's, there's administrative layers, if I can. has nothing to do with personal superiority. And I, I think sometimes we have trouble seeing that because when we see someone having greater authority, we somehow think they're they must be better than us, but that's, that's not true. Uh, functional superiority does not mean personal superiority. Okay? Uh, there's going to be echelons of administrative structure, and, uh, the, and we're going to see these uh, in the kingdom. We're actually going to see them in the eternal state. Uh, according to Revelation 22, there will still be nations. Okay? So there's going to be, you know, there, we're still going to have ethnic identities, and we're going to still gather in groups uh, that are identified here. We're going to have kings. Um, and uh, so, so there, that, that's not something that's just completely done away with. I think that's sometimes the idea that we have is, okay, once we get to the end, everybody's sort of level. Uh, but that's, that's not true. Uh, remember, 
uh, the, uh, the promises that faithfulness with little things gives you, what, 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 what will that earn you in the eternal state? You'll be over ten cities or five cities. Okay, so uh, there does seem to be some administrative structuring that is ongoing in the kingdom and even in the eternal state. So, so what are some of these functional layers here? Well, there's the king and his bride, which seem to be in the ruling class. Okay, the bride of Christ uh, will reign with him for a thousand years, right? So the king will reign righteously, and if we endure, Paul says in 2 Timothy, we will reign with him. Uh, Revelation 3, he who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne, even as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. So when Christ died on the cross, rose and ascended, he joined his father on his throne, the throne of the universe. He's restored to his place of power and and all the recognition that goes with it. Uh, But he says here, you're going to join me on my throne just as I joined God the Father on his throne. So we are going to be, uh, in some sense, reigning with him as uh, uh, co-regents, not having equal authority, of course, with him, but uh, we are going to be rulers, sub-rulers, governors, perhaps we could say. We also find that there are Old Testament saints and tribulation martyrs. Uh, and uh, we find those, too, have a place of significance. I saw the th- souls of those who had been beheaded for their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead, and they came to life, and they reigned, too, for a thousand years. Blessed and holy is he who has the part in the first resurrection, because over these the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and Christ and reign with him a thousand years. Uh, Zerubbabel and David will have a ruling place, in a place of honor in the kingdom. David will uh, be restored to his throne. There's some question as to whether that's David personally, or uh, the, the Davidic representative, which would be the Messiah, and I'm not going to go into some of the ins and outs of that debate here, uh, but, but it, perhaps David himself will have some sort of a functional uh, 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 place there in the kingdom. But the Old Testament saints will receive their land inheritance. Remember Abraham was said in Acts 7-5, he went to this land and not a foot of that ground was given to him. So he died, as, as Hebrews 11 says, he died not having received the promises. But he's going to receive the promises. Okay, so he's going to receive an inheritance. He's actually finally going to get some, some of this promised land, this land promised to him. I mean, all he got was the cave of Machpelah, right? You know, where he was buried. That's the, that's the, that's the totality of the land that he got. Uh, and that only after he died. But he's going, to get a, he's going to get a place here. Living Israel will also have a place as well. Those who... Uh, who convert when all Israel is saved in, in, in Romans 11. They're going to have a place of nobility and particularly a priestly function. Nations will come to your light. Kings will come to the brightness of your rising. The wealth of the nations will come to you. They will go up 
with acceptance on my altar, and I will glorify my glorious house. Foreigners will build your walls up. Their kings will minister to you. The sons of these who afflicted you will come bowing to you, and all who despised you in history will bow themselves at the soles of your feet, and they will call you the city of the Lord, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. Strangers will stand and pasture your flocks. Foreigners will be your farmers and vine dressers. You will be called the priests of the Lord. Remember the priestly, you know, in the, uh, in the Old Testament, the, uh, the, uh, the priests did not get any land. They were, they were dependent upon the rest of the, uh, of the people to support them. And of course, part of the problem was they never really did. And so the, the Levites were always sort of, you know, landless and uh, you know, probably suffered for that, but not now, okay? These are going to be treated the way the priests were supposed to be treated. People are going to be fawning to, to help the Israelites. They are going to honor these people. They are going to honor the recipients of the promise, and so in this they will be blessed as well. So they'll, they'll actually take over the responsibilities of of, of herding their sheep and, 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 and pasturing their flocks and being their far, farmers and vine dressers so that you, Israel, can be called the priests of the Lord and be ministers of our God. You will eat the wealth of the nations and in their riches you will boast. Instead of your shame, you will have a double portion, which is the way it was supposed to be. They'll have the double portion, and, and their responsibility will be to represent the, the nations before God. And then the living Gentiles then make the balance of this kingdom. Uh, living Israel as a place of honor among the nations assumes that there must be nations. A, a large number of converts among the Gentiles. Uh, that will take place at the end of the tribulation as well. And these will be represented by Israel, and they will enjoy the blessings of the kingdom as well. And uh, I think it's important that we see that there, not everybody can be a king in the, uh, in the, uh, in the millennium. It's, you know, we can't have all, all Indian chiefs and no Indians, right? Uh, that's probably politically incorrect, but, but, uh, but you know, you, 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 they can't all be kings, and so there's going to be rulers, and there will be the ruled. Uh, and they'll be happily ruled, uh, will be benevolent rulers, uh, but there will be a large number of living Gentiles uh, who will be ruled and who will employ the priestly services of living Israel as well. And so we're, we're going to find these, these different groups uh, that are going to be situated within the millennium. Okay. Any, any questions on the kingdom? Yes? Yeah, page 40, right kind of in the middle uh that uh, number two Old Testament saints, tribulation martyrs down there, uh, you have, uh, David will have a ruling position. Uh, yeah. Uh, Pentecost had kind of a, I'll, I'll just say, interesting view yeah. about the millennial kingdom, about uh, about Christ actually not being on earth, that, that New Jerusalem is kind of suspended above earth, and, and he comes down maybe for the festive occasions, but but David is actually doing the ruling. Do you have now, it's, anything to say on that? I I just thought it was interesting. I don't know if it's right or wrong. Right. Well, it seems like the the, the scepter comes out of Zion that's wielded by the by, by David's Lord, right? 
the Lord said to my Lord. Yeah. Uh, so it seems, it seems to me that David's Lord is actually the one who's going to be ruling. Yeah. Now, David may have some sort of personal function or role, but there's a lot of debate as to what, what, what this means, the, the restoration of the tent of David. Does this mean David himself is going to have some sort of functional uh, ruling capacity in the kingdom? Maybe. Uh, but again, we often find that David, the, the references to David ha, uh, refer to the Davidic representative, which could be the Messiah. So I, it's, it's not necessarily David. I mean, he's going to be there. It would be kind of odd that he would be just sort of an, you know, an ordinary guy. You'd think that he would have some sort of place, uh, but uh, I, I don't know if I can say that with certainty. Okay, so let's move on to uh, the resurrection, doctrine of the resurrection. Okay, so uh, we've already said that there's a resurrection that takes place at the beginning of the millennium and at the end of the millennium. Let's see if we can't uh, you know, tease out all the details of this resurrection. We'll start all the way back in the Old Testament uh, because the Old, Old Testament saints had a concept of resurrection uh, may not have been as well developed as ours is as a result of New Testament revelation, but they were aware of the fact that they would come back to life and uh, receive their inheritance. So Old Testament saints understood the possibility of the resurrection from the dead. Abraham, remember he, uh, remember he took his son Isaac, went to the top of the hill, was raising his knife, and he was about to put it in. And it wasn't, he wasn't just pretending. <laughs> he was, you know, the, the angel had to stop his hand, you know, as it, as, the, as, it, as it came down. And it says in Hebrews that the reason he was willing to do this, even though Isaac was the son of the promise, and there didn't seem to be any other sons that were going to, you know, measure up to this son of the promise. But why did, so why did he do this? It seems like it's, it's one of those catch-22s. Do I believe the promise or I don't believe the promise? Um, I believe the promise, but I'm going to put the, the knife into my son because Jesus, God told me to. And, it, and it, we find in Hebrews eleven nineteen, he expected Jesus, God, to raise him from the dead. So he, he, he thought, okay, I'm going to put my knife in, but God's, but God's going to bring him back to life. So that was his expectation. Of course, it didn't happen that way. Uh, but, he, but he anticipated the possibility of resurrection. We actually find people raised from the dead multiple occasions in the Old Testament as well. Elijah raises the son of the woman at Zarephath. Elisha uh, raises the son of the Shunammite woman. And then there was another uh, situation where uh, during, during, the bat during a battle situation, a man was killed and they didn't know what to do with him, so they sort of uh, stuck him into Elisha's crypt, uh, his, and, and, uh, and his, 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 his bone box, his ossuary. And when the body hit the, the, uh, Elijah's, Elisha's ossuary, you know, he popped back to life. So, so we find at least three occasions here where people who were dead came back to life. And so there was, this, there was this thought that would have been there. The Old Testament, I think, predicts something even more than just a temporary 
resurrection from the dead that they saw here in Kings, uh, but also a final resurrection, Job. In chapter 19, as for me, he says, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will take his stand on the earth. And even after my skin is destroyed, even though I'm going to rot, I'm going to go into my grave and I'm going to rot. I'm going to turn to dust. Even after my skin is destroyed, yet from the standpoint of my flesh, I shall see God. So, 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 so how do you put, put all that together? Well, you know, I'm going to die, I'm going to rot, I'm going to turn to dust in the ground, and yet from the standpoint of my flesh, I shall see God because my Redeemer lives and I shall too. Okay? So there's an anticipation here uh, that there will be a resurrection that he will experience. Daniel tw- uh, 12 talks about uh, the resurrection at the end of time. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. Okay? Got the valley of dry bones, and, you know, various, various situations uh, that, uh, where, where, where we have this promise of new life at the end times. In the New Testament, it becomes a little bit more clear. Resurrection is predicted by Christ. He says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. But he was speaking about the temple of his own body. So, kill me, I'll come back. The time is coming when all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come out. And we find this actually occurs on a couple of, about three, situa- three uh, occasions in the ministry of Christ. The widow's son comes to life, Jairus' daughter, Lazarus, of course, the more, probably the more famous one there. Uh, but all of these individuals come to life. Now, these died again, uh, but there's this, there's this anticipation here that this is something that God can do. And then first, then, is accomplished in the person of Christ, the, uh, the permanent uh, resurrection. So Christ has been indeed raised from the dead, the first fruits of all who have fallen asleep. Now, of course, this doesn't mean he's the first one who has ever risen from the dead, but he's the first to rise in a glorified body never to die again. And that's the, uh, that's the anticipation here in 1 Corinthians 15. And then we find resurrection uh, fully addressed uh, in the writings of Paul and of John. So what do we mean by resurrection? Well, resurrection, when we, when we see the word resurrection in the scripture, typically uh, we, are, we are talking about that permanent uh, that, 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 that permanent bodily reintegration of material and immaterial as a single living entity. Uh, and so while there are s- several who rise from the dead temporarily, the, the term uh, anastasis, the, the, the re- resurrection, is never used of those, those temporal, temporary uh, resurrections. Uh, th- these are just, uh, you know, th- they come back to life, But this is not a resurrection in the fullest sense of this permanent bodily reintegration of material and immaterial. Uh, Of the 42 times uh, that the term resurrection is used in the New Testament, 41 apply to final resurrection. There's one occasion uh, in Hebrews 11.35 
in which uh, a temporal resurrection is detailed, uh, but it's immediately followed up, but that person died again. They're going to rise again later, a better resurrection. Okay, so there's, uh, so there's only one occasion where this term resurrection is used of a temporary rising from the dead. The only reference to a spiritual resurrection in Scripture is soundly condemned. And the point I'm making here is the resurrection to the bodies that we will have is going to be literal. There's going to be a material reintegration of material and immaterial, so your body and your soul are going to be reunited permanently. And so we're going to have a corporeal existence in the kingdom and in the eternal state. Uh, so there's nothing wrong with having a body. There, there is something wrong with, the, with our bodies. You know, we wake up with more and more aches and pains every morning, right? Um, and so we long for this better body. But there's, there's nothing wrong with having a body. In fact, Jesus has a body, and he will forever, right? Okay, but... So there's nothing wrong with having a body, uh, but we do long for a, a, a one that doesn't wear out and, and uh, hurt us so badly. Okay? So it's a, it is a, it is a, it, there's, it's not merely a spiritual resurrection, whatever that means. Um, in fact, I'll, I'll write there. 2 Timothy 2, Hymenaeus and Philetus wandered away from the earth, Saying uh, from the truth, saying that the resurrection has always already taken place and is destroying the faith of some. Okay, so here's here's somebody who's saying, yeah, the resurrection has happened. You know, well, no, there's more to resurrection than regeneration. There is there is actually going to be a new and better and grander expression of corporeality, and those who deny that are actually abandoning the faith. He says. Question. Uh, the second point, the only mm -hmm. reference to a spiritual resurrection is condemned. What, what, what is the site for that? The citation? Yeah, second, that, the verse oh, okay, right, right there. Right, so, yes. I got you. Right. And we, also, we often talk about the immortal soul of an individual uh, because when someone dies, their body goes to the grave and begins to decompose. Uh, but, the, uh, uh, but the soul lives on. But Actually, we find references to an imperishable body as well. So we do have an immortal body. Not now, but we'll get one. So, uh, so there's nothing wrong with having a body. It's not, a, it's not, a, you know, it's not a, this platonic idea that we're trying to escape the prison house of the body. We are, trying to, we, we are anticipating a better body, uh, but uh, it's not as though we're, our, our goal is to be disembodied and become sort of part of this spiritual collective. So the order of the resurrection, well, it's not a single event. There's no general resurrection. Instead, uh, 1 Corinthians 15 gives details as to how this resurrection takes place. We already started here with Christ first. Okay, So as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive, each in his own order. Christ, the first fruits. He was the first one. After that, those who are Christ's at his coming. And then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father. Okay, so there's going to be three distinct uh, instances of resurrection that take place. Christ, of course, is first. He's the firstborn from the dead. Uh, he's referred to this a couple of times. He's the first to rise from the dead. And what, is this, what is meant by this? Well, he's first in time. 
And that's, that's pretty clear. And that's the main idea of the Levitical system. Remember, they would, they would offer the, you know, the very first uh, calf uh, that was born to a, a cow. Uh, that one belonged to the Lord. Uh, the very first, uh, first ripened fruit that could be harvested, that belonged to the Lord. So it was first in time. Uh, that was always given immediately to God. Okay? Even the first child was dedicated to God in a special sense. Okay? But probably there's also this idea that he's first in rank as well. So not only is he first in time, but he's also first in rank. And this is the main idea of being the firstborn okay? in um, many cultures still. Uh, but particularly in the Hebrew culture, the firstborn son was the privileged son. You may think that's unfair, but that's the way it was. Uh, firstborn son was not only first in time, but also first in position or rank. He received a double portion and was given leadership over the family if dad died. Uh, so the idea of lordship is dominant here. So he is first in time and first in rank. So he's the first to rise. But then here we have those who are Christ at his coming. So having established that the coming of Christ has two phases to it, it's probably best to see, you know, this is not just a single event here. Uh, at least four groups can be seen participating in this resurrection. First is the rapture. The whole corpus of the church, living and dead, will be resurrected at the rapture to prepare for the marriage uh, of the Lamb. The dead in Christ will rise first. Okay, so this, this, so this second grouping here, there's, there's actually an ordering within it. So part one, Jesus. Part two, well, there's part 2A. <laughs> That's the rapture of the church, okay? And so those who are in Christ, those who are part of the church, will be immediately raised at the, at the rapture. We also find that two witnesses are raised at the middle of the tribulation. And then Old Testament saints are resurrected at the second coming, but prior to the millennial kingdom. Remember, Daniel says this, Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake these to everlasting life. And if you're following the, the sequence in Daniel, this is after those, those, those seven years have taken place. Then, uh, these, these who sleep in the dust of the ground, the Jewish saints, will rise to everlasting life. Okay. Tribulation martyrs are also resurrected at the close of the tribulation as well, and we already read uh, this section from Revelation chapter 20. So uh, we find that uh, at around the coming, the second advent of our Christ, which has a, you know, has a first aspect and a second aspect, we find that there are A, B, C, and D uh, elements here of, the, of, this, of this second grouping. But then comes the end. Predominantly, uh, and perhaps entirely made up of the unrighteous dead, who rise now for judgment. And the sequence seems to imply that there's a final resurrection at the end uh, here, and Revelation 20 describes this. The rest of the dead is how John puts it in Revelation 20. The rest of the dead did not come to life until this thousand years was done. And at that time, John saw a great white throne, him who sat upon it, from whom, whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. They, they didn't really want to be 
brought back. I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. The books were open, and another book was open, which is the book of life. And these dead, who had just come to life, were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. The sea gave up the dead which were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. They were all judged, everyone according to their deeds. Okay, so this is the third phase of the resurrection. Uh, there are some who actually don't like to use the term resurrection for this group because they don't get glorified bodies, uh, obviously, uh, because you know, glorified bodies belong to the redeemed. Uh, at the same time, there does seem to be some sort of body attached to them. And we'll actually have a debate next time, uh, you know, or a conversation about, uh, about the, uh, the ravages of the lake of fire as hell, uh, because it does seem like there is a physical component to that, uh, the, to uh, the lake of fire. I don't think it's the principle component of the lake of fire, the punishment in the lake of fire, but there does seem to be a physical component. So it does appear that they get bodies. Now, what are these bodies like? Yeah, I, I don't know. Are they going to be the same as our resurrection bodies? I, I, I really don't know, uh, because uh, you wouldn't think that they would have you know, a privileged body, but it does seem like they do have a body of a sort and perhaps it's one of those imperishable bodies. Uh, maybe that kind of language actually does work because the worm doesn't die. And so there is this, this continuous physical component uh, to the, to the uh, ravages of the lake of fire. Uh, although there's, there, are, there are many who have, who have questioned that, and we'll, we'll, we'll detail that a little bit uh, next time when we come together. Okay? Just a few minutes left. Let's see if we can't talk about this resurrection body. Everybody wants to know about the new body we're going to get. And we have precious little data, but we get some. Okay? And so if you're going to have, if you pepper me with questions, I'm probably going to get some, you're going to get some I don't knows. But we know a little. And so let's see if we can't uh, say what we know. Okay? First, it's patterned after Christ's body. He will transform the body of our humble estate into conformity with his glorious body, his glorified body. And we know that when he appears, we will be like him. Okay? So whatever can be said about Jesus' resurrection body, and we get a little bit of detail about it, the same apparently can be said for ours. It is physical. Remember Jesus, since we know now that Jesus' body is our pattern, we can, we can start uh, teasing out some of the details. Remember, Jesus came into the midst of the, uh, of the disciples and Thomas there the second time. And, you know, Thomas had said, I won't, I won't believe until I actually can stick my finger into, into the, the nail prints in his hand and my, thrust my hand into his side. And Jesus comes and says, go ahead. Of course, Tom, Thomas actually doesn't. You know, he, he actually believes at this point. But apparently it was possible for him to do that. Uh, and because he had a physical body. See my hands, see my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see, because a spirit doesn't have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet, and he ate before them. Okay, so, you know, if, if, he's, if he's just a disembodied ghost here, uh, you know, you'd, you'd think that the, the, the fish goes into his mouth and just, 
drops on, onto, the, onto the floor. No, no, he actually is able to eat because he has a physical body. Okay? Don't ask me questions about digestion and excretion. I don't know. But, <laughs> but, but apparently he was capable of eating. It is similar, apparently, in appearance to the original body. Christ's body was recognizable to those who had known him previously. They were able to recognize who he was. But it was not always immediately recognizable, which is something of a curiosity. Remember, uh, there's Mary in the, in, the, in the garden, and she, she comes alongside, uh, he comes alongside, and they're con- having a conversation, and, and finally he, he divulges who he is, and she's like, oh, it's him. It's the master. So, so she, so, so, so she doesn't recognize him immediately. Now, there's, there's a couple of, I mean, it doesn't give us a descri- an explanation of why this is. Maybe she's just overcome by grief and she's not looking up. I mean, it, it's possible, okay? But, but perhaps there was something about his appearance that made, him, made her not recognize him immediately. She did think he was the gardener, okay? So, so, so she saw him as a man, but perhaps didn't recognize him instantly. Uh, perhaps the best solution is that his his glorified body, all of the all of the scars and the warts and the age lines and and you know maybe some injuries from when he was in the carpenter shop, all those have been you know are gone, and he's you know he's. His, his stiff back is straightened up again. And so maybe there were just some, some things, maybe, maybe, you know, who knows, maybe he was bald and his hair was back. You know? so, so, so she apparently didn't recognize him immediately, but she ultimately did recognize him uh, because there was apparently some connection with the previous body, at least in terms of appearance. Okay? Again, it's not necessarily, for him, it was the same substance. But for us, it, obviously, you know, they're, they're, in fact, this is one of the questions that comes up, is cremation okay? Because if, I get, if my body is completely, you know, completely demolished and scattered, uh, is, is God going to be able to find all my parts and put me back together again? But I don't think this is necessarily a problem for just people who are cremated. I mean, it's true of anybody who is dead for any length of time. Um, so, so even though there's going to be some sort of uh, some some sort of resemblance, I don't know that it necessarily employs all of the same matter uh, that was was that made up the original body. Okay. The new body will be the same in identity then and but different in substance. Okay. And so just like we have today, you know, they say that you, your body is replaced every seven years, right? You know, I, I don't know if that's true. I've heard it though. <laughs> so, I mean, your, your, your skin cells and all the, you know, every, everything just gets replaced. And so the body you have now is, is not the same body that you had seven years ago. And yet, we still recognize we still recognize each other because there is continuity, and perhaps it's something like that. Uh, uh, except this, these, these, this substance is not going to wear out. It is a spiritual body. Now, wh- what is meant by that is not that it's that it's not material, but there's something that is enhanced about it, if I may. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. 
So again, it's a platonic fallacy that pits spiritual against physical. Okay? Uh, Paul speaks of a person as being spiritual. It doesn't mean he's not physical. It just means that there is something enhanced, something better. It's going to be fitted for the new age. Um, there's, there's a lot of questions as to, you know, Jesus appeared in this room with the disciples. How did he, how did he appear? I mean, it doesn't say. I mean, it's possible he opened the door and walked in. Uh, but but the, the, the emphasis is on but the door was locked. And so, so is it a miracle of overcoming the lock, or is it somehow that he sort of wafted into the room like, you know, he was beamed in by like Star Trek? I, I, I don't know. Uh, but some suggest here that there may be some spiritual enhancements that we'll have. Maybe we can get around a little bit faster. I don't, I don't know. Uh, but... Uh, there will be enhancements that will attend this new body. It's not going to be the same that we have. It's going to be better. Uh, it's going to be imperishable, and perhaps there will be enhancements that will allow us to do things that we can't now. But again, details are, are scant. Uh, so uh, the, I, don't, I don't have answers to uh, any of your questions at this point. But it's glorious and incorruptible, and uh, we can anticipate it. And this is something... Uh, you know, the, the older you get, the, the, more you, the more you start to anticipate this body. When you're young, you think, what could be better? <laughs> but then you realize uh, <laughs> there's some things that could be better, and uh, we anticipate that. So hopefully on that uh, positive note, uh, we can uh, call this a night here, and we'll come back for uh, another week, two more weeks, and then we'll be done for the semester. Okay? We'll see you then. <laughs>